welcome to The Broken Arrow, a traditional bow hunting podcast brought to you by Addictive Archery with your hosts, Schaefer Magnet and Chris Siegel. How's it going, Carson? Good. How you doing, Schaefer? Oh, not too bad. And then we got we got Chris on the line. Too. What's up, Carson? How are you, man? Good. How you doing, Chris? Good. Happy St. Patty's Day. Is it St. Patty's Day today? Yeah, I just found out. <laughs> <laughs> Happy clearly, St. Patty's Day. Clearly, I'm Welsh. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I got a fair amount of Irish in me too. Uh, yeah, totally. Uh, um. Totally focused on work here. Did not know. That's what happens when you don't have coworkers or an office you go to, you know? Yeah. And and you're kind of busy, huh? A little bit, I would yeah. say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm busy right now with, uh, decided to tackle all these, uh, you know, there's a whiteboard, so to speak, with a number of uh, projects, long-term projects on there, and uh, decided to just, there's no good time to stop what you're doing and, and tackle those. And so I just decided to stop what I was doing and tackle them all at once. And, uh, yeah, just about over the hump with those. So are they arrow related or homestead related? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. The home has been completely ne- neglected, uh, since I bought it. <laughs> but art, particle board floors, popcorn ceiling that's got to come out. Oh, like yeah. I've done. My kids are on to me, but it's like gotta gotta take care of the business. That's what that's what's gonna take care of the home. So, is it is that as, your full time gig? Consumer, I'm happy. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> is that is is that your full time gig? Yeah, that's that's uh, all I do now. Yep. Wow, and and that's I mean, awesome. yeah, it, I, I've seen you post a couple of videos lately. You've been working on some of the machines and things, right? Yeah, yeah, just improvements on existing machines that uh you know things that you you run these things for a long time and you're they're never perfect right and you're like man if this was just changed i'd be a lot better and uh finally just tackle on a number of those things and uh it's kind of like remodeling your home you know once you you start tearing in you realize uh you got to tear a little deeper than you initially thought oh yeah yeah, like a plumbing project. You start with one thing and you end up with fifty. After sixteen yeah. trips to Lowe's. Yeah, of course, of course. I, I, that's that's why I couldn't. Uh, I I had to text you guys. I'd be a little late. I was uh, had to run into the hardware store in Albany and uh, <laughs> get some very specific springs for my little idler wheel hold down system on the sander. So 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 if I'm you're organizing those parts right now. If you're uh, pretty busy, that probably means you haven't filled my order yet, right? Uh, did you get the email that said it might be anywhere yes, 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 yes. Uh, three, so, three and four months? Is it that far out? I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> three, three to four, three to four weeks. Right, I saw that. Okay, so I can add. I still have time to add on to that if I want to. Yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. All right, yeah, I was just realizing today that I, I, I need something else. All right. Well, that's been kind of the the interesting thing that uh, I didn't foresee when I put. I, I was real hesitant to put up a notice on the website that I'd be that far behind. It's like that's the reality of it, and uh, I got to let my customers know what they're getting into when they mm-hmm. order. Well, that's prompted it seems the number of 
of customers to kind of like, well, I better order three or four dozen instead of one or two dozen now. <laughs> you know, and it's like making it's, it worse. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of you know, it's not a bad problem to have for for you know from a business standpoint, but um, yeah, it's uh, like oh crap, we've uh, kind of snowballed, gotten a bit. Yeah, exactly. So, but. Uh, good news is uh from that standpoint of uh being behind and, and all that is uh once the sander projects button back up i've got a lot of material waiting to come down the pipe I've, I've got my ducks in a row there and that was a problem this time last year was material and just not having being able to get it we had these big fires a year and a half ago and it was it uh, seemed like there would be a lot of salvage, uh, big timber coming down out of the mountains as a uh, salvage. And, and eventually there would be, but uh, the first winter after the fires, basically nothing happened. You know, there, it was just such a mess. There was nothing coming down out of the mountains. And uh, the Forest Service, who we normally get uh, material from, uh, was just a, a lot of the, like the district, foresters and two of the districts we go to they were displaced their homes burned up so it was like those offices were just a mess everybody was behind up there and it kind of um uh there's a gap in uh in getting material but uh eventually that all started making its way down the mountain in terms of uh salvage logs out of fires and and became available here and there um uh, so i got a lot um Kind of like the customers who are deciding uh, uh, what was three or four dozen instead of one or two. I kind of did that with logs here this last uh, fall. So got a lot of material. Nice. Well, that's good. Now, when you get material in, is there any way of telling what spine range it might be, or is it just uh, luck of the draw? Uh, I feel like, me personally, I've gotten um, – as I gain more experience, I have a pretty good idea, but that's not, uh, but I've been fooled before. Like it's definitely uh, been fooled. It's, it's, uh, it's hard to tell on a, just an end cut of a, uh, of a log, but there are some indicators. You're kind of looking at, like, I don't know. Have you guys looked into making like Osage self bows yet? We're getting there. Yeah, we're getting there. That, that's a I good think, way of describing yeah, it. We're, we're starting to get into hickory and ash, I think. Nice, nice. Okay. Well, you're, you're lo- often, like on Osage, it's kind of, and, and this is true for ash too, it's a ring porous wood like Osage. You're looking at the ratio of what's uh, early to late wood or, or um, spring wood, summer wood. And it's it's similar in conifers, but different. But you're basically looking at this like resinous layer the the harder denser pitchier layer and then the lighter softer layer in between and you're looking at the ratio of those two layers and if you see a high proportion of that harder resinous layer you you expect it to be a a denser heavier stiffer uh, material that makes sense so yeah 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 um Got a really nice log that, that has spine all the way up into eighty five ninety, which is definitely the upper limit. But uh, it had it in a really good amount and worked up half of that log last year and just about 
to the point where none of that's left, but uh, I've got the second half of that log now in process and shouldn't be too far from uh, from being on the shelf, but uh, but it'll be a matter of chasing down another log like that. Uh, yeah. Th- those hires. Now, oh, sorry. Sorry. Go ahead, Schaefer. Uh, is that pretty much strictly 1130 seconds? Do you still do 2364? Because I would assume widening up the diameter of the shaft would help with the stiffness a little bit, trying to get those higher ends spines. Right, yes. So, so yeah, diameter is definitely tied to, to stiffness, as you imagine. Um, that 8590s and even some 9095s out of that material, that's all 1130 seconds. So that wow. same stuff, yeah. Damn, that's, that's, that's uh, a stiff tree. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty incredible material, like, uh, for any wood to have the properties that it has when you're looking at an example of that uh, 1995 stuff. It's, it's pretty incredible. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that same, I did run some of that to 2364s, and uh, it, it was, you know, 110, 115. Wow. Uh, it, 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 yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's, 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 uh, go down all these like kind of technical nerdy rabbit holes with this stuff. But like if you take an 1130 seconds, for example, I had a bunch of 7580s out of that wood. That was the bulk of what that particular log produced. Lots of 7580s. I think I got some of those. And yeah, I think you got some of those out of that. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah, no, those are, I, I wish they could always be that, that quality. I'm always shooting for that, but that was an exceptional, uh, batch and well, uh, it, it killed my deer this year, so thanks. Nice, yes, Congrats. So, thank you. Um, killed some dirt in I Pennsylvania, needed... too. Yeah, it also got some dirt, but it did kill a deer. <laughs> okay, I think so I heard clear. a little bit about that on one of your other uh, <laughs> I like to bring it up occasionally. Yeah, he doesn't let me forget too. it, <laughs> but anyway, sorry, go ahead. Uh, we've all killed a little dirt here and there. That's uh, right, as long as you got a passer on it, that's all that matters. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> on that deer, on that dirt. Right. Both, both, both. <laughs> both. Oh, okay. yeah. So, oh, uh, man. Uh, so many tangents I want to go on here. It's but, all right. Uh, go. We're, we're here for you. Uh, yeah. So, so back to that, um, diameter and spine. Uh, I needed 6570s and, well, for myself personally too, that's what I shoot. And, and I just didn't have any on the shelf. And so I sanded some of those 7580s down and taking them down from an 1130 seconds to a 2164, which is between 516 and 1130 seconds. It's a, it's an uncommon diameter to see in, uh, in wood arrow shafting. But, you know, if you look at aluminums, you know, a 20, 2119, 2118 is not uncommon. Um, it, that's a twenty-one sixty-four diameter shaft in aluminum. We we were talking about this last year. You were telling me because I was up in the air. I, I wanted to run. I think I wanted to run a full-length shaft, and and you ended up actually talking to me in the seventy-five eighties, which was awesome. It worked perfect. It tuned right. Um, Good. but what what was the deal when you when you sand it down? What what are you doing for knock and point end if you're not exactly eleven thirty seconds? Uh, so. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, let me let me wrap up what where. I was oh yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I just wanted to say to take off. So I think I think eleven thirty seconds is three four three um, decimal inches. Point um, three four three. Right. 
And a 2164 is three, two, one. Uh, it, and so basically, we're look at what is that? Uh, thirteen thousand, twelve to thirteen thousand. Uh, oh no, sorry, uh, twenty one sixty four is three two eight. So fifteen thousandths of an inch, and and that okay. drops us seventy five eighty right down to sixty five seventy. So just uh, fifteen thousandths of an inch changes that stiffness of the arrow shaft um, ten pounds. On average, wow. so anyway, that's just a just a. That's like barely anything, there. too, isn't it? Fifteen like, thousandths is not much. No, and uh, it changes it by ten pounds. That's insane. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I'm just happy I'm not the only one that pulls out dial calipers often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I started doing this, I had I was clueless about any of that. Um, yeah, but. Uh, I learned a lot and now it's fun. I was able to teach my, my boy, especially about fractions. He's curious about bell calipers and 11 30 seconds and how, how come a 2164 is smaller than 11 30 seconds? It's a bigger number, right? 21. Yep. You know, so we got to go over that and that like just having some real world something to put that stuff he's learning at school about fractions onto, uh, was was helpful, I think, for him. Uh, but, uh, back to your question, Chris, about the the knocks and points on a odd size like a twenty one sixty four. What I personally do because I, I I sanded some of those down for myself, mm-hmm. and I'll I'll tail taper the end to five sixteenths, just like you normally do in eleven those seconds. Okay, and and that that'll fit your five sixteenths knock. Yep. Um, it's not much of a taper. It's a little less of a taper, but it's just to get a nice clean knock fit. Um, and then on the point end, an 11 30 seconds isn't much of a, uh, you can put an 11 30 seconds point on there and barely tell. Uh, I was about to say that would probably almost be beneficial with a broadhead because if anything, you'd get right. over. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be like exactly. running, running a micro diameter or something, but not that exactly. drastic. It can, right. uh, the only problem with the, the design of a field point, you know, that, that, back end can be kind of sharp if left as overhanging so pulling out of foam all the time it can it has potential to chew up foam targets a little more but i just as i'm mounting it with the hot glue there's always a little excess that creeps out and i just wipe around the base of that with my yep. finger as it's cooling and that mm-hmm. just makes a nice nice transition it's not much of a gap you know fifteen thousand divided by two basically you know there's there's seven thousands on each side of gap this. Yeah, that's that's hardly any. And yeah. I guess one thing we should probably go over before we get too far into the weeds here is for those who don't know Carson, how did you end up with Sherwood? Yeah, good question oh. there. Um, yeah, so it, it, I don't want to – I mean, the history of Sherwood Shafts is kind of long, but it was started by a guy in Jefferson uh, named – which is the town I grew up in. Named Doug Knight. He was my dad's buddy growing up. Um, they were classmates and, and hunting partners, and they both got into traditional bow hunting right out of high school. And uh, and they ran an archery shop when I was a little kid. Right when I was born, they they did that for a couple years. Maybe maybe it lasted like three years. KB Sports, and it was right in the out of the old garage out of our backyard. And, uh, 
it, it didn't, it, it, it fizzled out. You know, my dad was working full time and Doug was working as well. And, and that fizzled out, but Doug pursued the archery business. He got, he became a bowyer. Um, his old reekers and longbows are still really sought after if you can find them, uh, night, night reekers, night longbows. Um, and, and then he started the shaft business, uh, with the tutelage of, uh, Bill Sweetland, who's just down the, uh, Willamette Valley there out of Eugene Springfield. So, uh, so he decided to try and make these arrow shafts out of Doug fur, whereas everybody else was making them out of cedar. And he wasn't the first, but it definitely wasn't, it was kind of a forgotten and overlooked material at that time. Uh, there's definitely old, old, uh, catalogs from the thirties, the Yee Sylvan archery, uh, publications refer, there, there's some advertisements in there that, uh, advertise Doug fur shafting and all of its, uh, merits as air shaft. So he popularized it in, in his business that when he started was Oregon traditional arrows. And then, uh, it kind of went idle. He decided to sell the equipment and get out of it and, uh, bounced around Bob Marshall and Nick not picked it up. Um, when that didn't work out and they, passed it around. And then eventually Doug wanted back into it. My dad was getting close to retirement. Bob Marshall still wanted to part in it. And the three of them re revived it as Sherwood shafts. And that was probably about 13 or 14 years ago, I, I'm roughly. And uh, so anyway, I just got to watch my dad in the business and watch it grow and spread through just word of mouth. Uh, trad gang and leather wall, you know, before the social media stuff, um, old internet forums. And, uh, that was just super neat for me and inspired me, uh, to start up a little business called Echo Archery that was focused on the self bows and primitive archery stuff that I had really gotten into right around that time. Um, so a number of years passed and I went through a divorce. My dad got diagnosed with cancer, so I started helping out at Sherwood while I was still trying to get Echo Archery to the point where it was like a real uh, full-fledged business. And then it just became apparent the more I worked helping Bob and Steve and, and filling in for my dad out at Sherwood that, uh, you know, there's just a lot of potential for the business. And uh, so when I got the chance to become a partner with Bob and Steve Savage, um I jumped at that and I'm really thankful that they were willing to take me on as a partner. And, uh, eventually Steve wanted out because he was becoming really busy with his son's business. Um, Archer passed Riley Savage. And, uh, then after another couple of years, Bob was ready to retire. And I, I, I offered to buy his portion of the business rather than, uh, you know, he could have sold it to somebody else and I'd, I'd, you know, as long as I agreed to it, take on a partner in the business, but I thought I wanted to just try and make a go at it myself. And that's where I'm at right now. I'm a year into that. So has it been good so far? Yeah, no, I love it. I, it's, it's something I'm just really passionate about. Uh, just, just maintaining the, the quality that they established and, uh, yeah, you know, 
pursuing excellence in anything is like a really rewarding pursuit. And that's, that's uh, where I'm at with it. I was going to say, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. I mean, I, I'm, I have gotten to the point where I have crested and sealed and I have two dozen of the three dozen I ordered ready for fletching. And I have put almost no hand straightening into probably 20 out of those two dozen shafts. And then the other four, just little tweaks here and there. And it's been pretty incredible. Nice. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a common feedback for me. And I, that's what, uh, Bob Marshall's the one. Well, my dad was a real stickler for, for straightening narrow shafts. I mean, he, he was, very detail oriented in that way. But in, in the end, I ended up learning a lot from Bob Marshall just because he was there and, and teaching me as I was learning. And, um, I could straighten a wood shaft, but not like he could. I mean, he could just, you know, you just watch him and he's barely paying attention to what he's doing. But he, at the same time, he just took this shaft, sided down it out of the corner of his eye as he's talking to me and made a little flex here, a little flex there, spins it across his thumbnails and it spins like a top. Uh, and I was always like, I couldn't spin the damn thing on my thumbnails. I can't even snap. My thumbs barely work. <laughs> but uh, I now I'm to the point where I can I, I can spin them. But I was always from from watching Bob Marshall and aspiring to do do it like he could. Now I'm at that point, you know, four or five years into to doing this uh, full time. Um, I, I shouldn't say that that was all full time, but it, essentially, you know, be, being an actual partner of the business for four years and now, yeah, about four or five years in, uh, now I can sit there in the recliner with a pile of shafts and, and a lamp over my shoulder and, uh, grade and straighten while I watch a movie or chat on the phone with a buddy. And, and, uh, yeah, so every single shaft's hand straightened, uh, which I think is, um, maybe not the norm for the industry. I don't know for certain, but, uh, I, I know for a lot of So, so I've gotten from you, I think I've been shooting Woody's for coming on a year. And I think I've ordered a ridiculous amount for, I think for only a year, I think I've gone through eh, 10 dozen from you, maybe. Yeah. So, that so sounds far? about right. Yeah. And, I think I've straightened four of them and it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was barely just straightening them. And, um, so basically I guess what I'm getting at is, is you pretty much handle every single arrow. You, you touch every single arrow that comes out of your shop, right? Yes. Yeah. Several times. <laughs> How? So there's actually, um, so, so when they're a finished, once they're a finished shaft, they go into a box and they come home with me. And, um, from that point on, everything is done out at my place. Uh, there's a, a shop space that's rented for the business here where all of the big, uh, machines live and, and do all the, all the sawdust making and molder chip making. Um, anyway, take, take those shafts home in a box. And the first step is grading into hunters, uh, Hunters premiums, and then there's also a, a, a select grade that uh, I don't really market. Uh, but uh, anyway, they, they get hand straightened while they're being graded. That's the first step. And then I'll take a big box of those premiums in that have been hand straightened and graded to premiums, 
they go over to the spine tester and get it uh, spined. And that's where every, as I spine, they go onto the spine tester. I use an ACE uh, spin, spin master. Spin, uh, anyway, the top of the line ACE spine tester. And as it hits those wheels, those rollers, I, I rotate the shaft with my right hand over basically about two revolutions as I'm, you know, zeroing the needle if needed. And that will show me real quick, any shafts that are still not very straight. So then they get, if, if needed, they get a second straightening at that point. Um, if at that point they are off very much at all, even if they're super straight grain, I don't try and make them perfectly straight. They just go into the hunter pile. Um, because they, they were straight at one point when I hand straightened them before, and now they've kind of moved back a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's an indication that it just wasn't, the you know. Something in it's wonky. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we're talking, you know, just thousands of an inch wonky. Nothing nothing real wonky makes it into any of the hunters or premiums. But, uh, but yeah, it's just a, it's just a step where I can ensure the, the quality of the premium grade. And then the final place where they get a chance to be graded again is uh, when I go to weigh them. Uh, and, you, you know, you probably notice this when you set it on a grain scale. Mm-hmm. If they aren't really straight, they'll have a tendency to roll. Yep. And so as soon as I set them on there, if it rolls at all, I'll pull it up, side down it, see if it needs what it needs. And, and if it's uh, too far off, yeah, I get downgraded at that point, too. So. I, I saw a post recently on social media, and it was somebody – talking about a certain wood arrow company and how awesome they were because they only had to straighten seven out of a dozen. And I kind of giggled. <laughs> when, when I was thinking of you, I was like, oh, man, I, I, I barely I, – I got this really nice ace arrow straightener, and I don't get to use it ever. Um, <laughs> but, but I – I, yeah. I, <laughs> so, so, so what I was getting at is you touch every single one of these arrows – how cool is it in January after all the hunting seasons are over to scroll through social media and see so many animals, all, all different animals that your arrows went through? I mean, like, yeah, it's, uh, it's gotta be cool. It, it's really cool. You kind of have that thought every once in a while. You just stop, like one arrow just stops you for no reason in particular. And you're like, Why'd that one stop me? Like, is this is this destined for something special? Is this going to be like a Brian Burkhart moose arrow? Or, yeah, that, you know, that, like I don't know. It's like, that's that's I I, I just <laughs> I just listened to their the 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 what do you call it the little delta uh, hunt that they just did, and they were talking about uh, the, you know they used your arrows, and I was like that how, that's got to be awesome gotta be for cool. Carson to think about. I mean, for, oh, from yeah. from my little Pennsylvania whitetail to. Brian Burkhart's moose to to Jim Mackout's uh, what do you call it uh, caribou? I mean, it's just yeah, got to be so yeah. rad. And, and there's a lot of them that don't make social media too that we don't know about. Oh yeah, but, uh, right. Like some customer that is just always ordered, and I didn't know who he was. Will send me some pictures from like his hunt success over the last ten years. I'm like, oh my god, who is this guy? <laughs> and uh, it's there's a lot of those guys out there. Yeah, um, a lot more than than we might think, but yeah, that was definitely what got me. Like, well, I mean, it was really exciting for me to see just as uh, when when my dad and Bob and Doug were really getting things going. 
you know, I'd go visit my dad and he's like, come check this out. And he'd pull up drag gang and start scrolling through. And it's just like, Oh man, that's awesome. Um, I mean, you know, just seeing all sorts of animals from all over the world taken with these shafts um, was pretty, pretty neat, you know. So now, yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's pretty cool to think about. Yeah. For and, and also some, some tournaments have been won with them that sure. weren't even limited to a wood arrow class. Like we've had some shafts best carbon um, in, in competition in Canada also have a guy out of New Mexico, uh, Jim Martin, who holds some flight records with uh, fur shafting um, and the unlimited bow weight classes, the broadhead. Uh, he, he holds several records with these shafts. Uh, so, yeah, yeah it's, it's awesome. That is cool. That is very cool. Yeah, I, I often think about that when I see when I see somebody take something with with, with a Sherwood shaft. I'm like... Oh, man, Carson's got to be looking at that going. That's so rad. I just couldn't imagine what that's like. It's cool. Um, you you did mention a couple times uh, like hunters and premium. What what's the major? I, I imagine the difference is straightness or or it's grain run out, right? Grain run out. Maybe is the difference between hunters and premiums. It's, it's you guys are both right. Yeah, it it is grain run out and straightness, and they're related. So. If you sight down a shaft and you see a little bit of that grave start, grain start to veer off a little bit, um, chances are it's also going to be a little out of straight. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just related to that. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's the difference. Somebody who's really experienced in hand straightening can make a dozen hunters just as straight as a dozen premiums pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it's it's not so much grain run out that it's a durability issue. I wouldn't say that our hunters are any less durable than the premiums because of grain run out. It's pretty slight grain run out, but uh, it, it it varies. It has varied over the years. It depends on the starting material coming into the shop, and uh, that's where that's where I've been kind of uh, just hyper vigilant about getting really, really good logs because everything looks better in the woods. I learned that cutting you staves and vine maple staves. Oh my God. When I first got into self bows, I cut myself loose out in the woods in places where they let you cut vine maple. I drug so much garbage home. And then you, and you have to deal with it and you don't want to let go of it because you like packed it out of some ridiculous place. and You're like attached to it and, uh, be ashamed to burn it. <laughs> yeah. You have to yeah. hike a couple yeah. miles with it. Yeah. And eventually that's what happens to it, but it takes you four years to get over it. <laughs> and, you know, pop it into three or four pieces and put it in the stove, and it burns great. But but uh, it always looks better in the woods Oh yeah. than when you get it home. And, and it's the same for arrowwood. And so just being super picky up front with what, um, what we process – uh, makes uh, has an effect on on where that line is on hunters and premiums. So I love it when stuff is coming through that's just so darn good that like you're looking for a reason to turn it into a hunter. You know, you're looking for any reason to take that shaft. Say, oh man, that's almost a perfect premium, but you know that little tiny little down the head or that in the hunter pile. You know that that's 
the ideal situation. And, but it, 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 uh, it just depends on what you're starting with. So I have two questions. Of course, now that I, I'm thinking of them, one of them has eluded me. Uh, one of them has to do with spine. Uh, so obviously, you were talking earlier about spine when you were testing it. How much spine difference do you notice as you spin from, well, spin the arrow around as you're hitting the different sides oh. of the? Oh yeah, that's something I've more worried about or wondered about. Because well, I, yeah, I have so made with the green and of, yeah, I've, yeah, I've made the mistake of gluing my knocks on wrong one time, and I was so paranoid about it I that can't, I, I can't yeah, no, I don't be. I you. did that on purpose one time. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, so much about that. Uh, I, I, I'm glad you brought up. It brings up some things I want to talk about. So generally, a pound or two difference between what we call edge grain and, and plain grain. And, uh, everything in the books, everything on the internet, it all says, you know, to orient your knock so that your edge grain, essentially, if you're looking at your, you're holding your bow with the arrow knocked, mm-hmm. your edge grain is parallel to the horizon, right? Parallel to Correct. the ground. The shelf. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. And that's how I was taught. That's how, you know, we, we were all taught. Mm-hmm. Well, I had a customer, a real interesting guy, and talked to him for a while, and he said that he used to make high-end golf clubs, and even with these super high-end, super expensive graphite rods, you know, the shaft that they'd start with, there would be some variation in stiffness around the axis of that, and they had this specialized machine for testing it you know basically this golf club shafts spine tester and what it would do is support it on each end and it would it would spin it and measure the the um pressure uh against you know flexing it as it was being spun and that would identify the weakest side of the shaft and that would always be lined up with the direction of your swing and I thought, huh, that's good. It, 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 he was real smart. I mean, I, I didn't like come to any great conclusion. He was leading me to this conclusion that we're, <laughs> we're generally, we're generally lining up the stiffest, um, axis of the shaft in wood arrow shafts with the, the, the direction of flexion. And Correct. whereas we might want to try and, and turn that 90 degrees and see what happens. And, uh, so I played around with that. And that was, that was one of the most accurate sets of shafts I ever made as far as what I was able to do shooting them. Uh, at the same time, I was also spining them all within one pound group, you know, for myself just to try. And I've never, I haven't had the time to really explore any of that stuff since. And that was about three or four years ago. So the grain would run uh, parallel with the sight window. Yes, exactly. Straight up and down. Now this well, is, it, this is and they weren't all exactly that way. They weren't all exactly that way. I would I would spine them and rotate them and spine oh. them and rotate them and find the weakest weakest ah, side of the shaft. Okay, okay, okay. Generally, generally okay. yes, but but there was a couple that were not that way. It depends on the wood. Like really fine grain, like like some of these shafts that have like twenty uh, growth rings mm-hmm. per shaft. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty uniform material, and you're not going to see a big difference from one side to the other. And you might see that it's uh, weaker on the edge grain, maybe. 
but the coarser grain stuff generally it's a more noticeable difference from from edge to plane. Yeah. Now you don't want to play with this if you're uh, making self knocks because that could lead you down some trouble. I would assume. Well, uh, self knocks with fur, you always want to wrap them. Um, you always want to wrap the base of the self knock with whether it's silk thread and super glue or bowstring glue or or uh, sinew or something. sinew and high glue. Yeah, which if you haven't played around with sinew high glue, it's it's so nice. Like it, a sinew will lay down nice, super flat. It shrinks up as it dries. It's bomb proof. It's the best thing for that. Uh, but you always want to wrap it. And, and I, I had a buddy, uh, who didn't wrap them. I'm like, dude, you didn't wrap them. They're going to split. Like, he's like, no, they're fine. I shot up a bunch and we were stump shooting on a spring bear shoot years ago. And one of them blew up on, you know, we're, we're shooting down this long logging road at the, cut bank and it's like a dry fire, you know, and his arrows flipping around right in front of us and it split out. Um, so it might be able to withstand it initially, but eventually that, that string is going to just split the wood like a mall splitting firewood. Wow. Yeah. I've always assumed if you were to line the string up with the, the grain layers, you would just split right down the, <laughs> the grain pretty quickly. Well, if you think, yeah, it seems like it because you can see the annual growth rings real easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are those are visible, but what's invisible is the the what's called the nutrient path or the radial grain. And uh-huh. think about splitting firewood; you're splitting on that that nutrient path or radial grain uh, yep. perpendicular, essentially, to the growth rings, and that splits pretty easily on that, right? Oh yeah, it'll also split fairly easy on the growth rings. Um, you know, when you've got a deep pie-shaped piece and you want to split it in half, uh, you know, knock off the nose, you can split on the annual growth rings pretty easily, too. But wood splits real easily on that, that those radial spokes, you know, if you think of a, looking at the end cut, you know, it's, it's spokes radiating out, out from the center. So, uh, yeah, it, it can, it can uh, that string can split it pretty easily when you orient your the the grain you know the the typical way um if you don't if you don't wrap your your knocks um well yeah. i guess i guess popping all those knocks off and regluing them was a waste of time <laughs> <laughs> i uh it, it's kind of funny because my my brother chase did the same thing like and like my dad taught us all how to do you know how to glue on knocks appropriately and he flubbed it and had them glued on haphazardly and, you know, dad or me or somebody pointed it out and we were all just laughing at him, raking him over the coals, you know, don't you know anything about making arrows? And yeah, no, he, but with what I know now, he probably would have been just fine. Um, yeah. yeah it's, it's funny. Every time I hand somebody one of my wood arrows, it's the first thing they check. It was yeah, yeah. everybody. I've noticed it. Thing. It's like I use the Bonin Classic, so you just line the indexer up with the, the layers of the grain, and you're perfect. You're good to go. Yep. And for yeah. some reason that day, I lined the groove of the knock with the layers of the grain, and I didn't even think about it. And then I got down to my buddy Jimmy's to hunt Massachusetts, and that was the first thing he did. Schaefer, don't you know? <laughs> don't you know your knocks are on wrong? What? Should, should yeah, we the, should we mention that you you were sober too? 
Oh, I'm, yeah, that's, that's bad. <laughs> this was so also you 2019. Popped them all off. You popped them I, all off in hunting camp? Oh, no, this was the worst part. I, just, and... I had all of my carbons, so I just switched. It bothered me that much. I just went back <laughs> to my carbons. <laughs> oh, man, too bad. Those probably would have been the best shooting wood arrows you ever had. No, this is the best thing. So this year... I, I was like, huh, I wonder if wonder if those arrows would shoot out of my longbow. So I popped them all off mid-hunting season this year and glued them back on. I just kind of found the best feather that had the knock oriented right, or you know what I thought was right. And I freak, that's what I've been shooting ever since hunting season while I'm making the ones I am now. <laughs> oh, for those awesome. ones from 2019. Didn't you call Andy on that? No, no, I don't think I thought so. You, I thought you called Andy on that. I was like, can I do this? No, I, I, emotional support. Yeah, you know, sometimes. He's the only guy we've had on here without a beard. So, you know, I gotta, gotta take my support where I can get it. Andy doesn't have a beard? No, right now. And I don't know if you've listened to the podcast, Carson, but, uh, I've been reading. I have. I didn't, I didn't know Andy was on there. We haven't posted it yet. Uh, He hasn't been on yet. Oh, oh, we just recorded. I think most of them. I, uh, we recorded his, last week and and we're like four weeks out or something ridiculous we've been we're, we're out of hand we're recording too many i, I we've been recording three a week no yeah, it's good it's good i'm uh, glad somebody's picking up slack recording some bow hunting podcast we're trying we're trying this this weekend's we're actually taking a weekend off because it's the pinewood derby for my son's scouts so that's a big deal so cool. we're slowing it down this weekend but we'll be back at it next weekend but oh yeah yeah um, well, one one thing I wanted to add real quick before we move on to yeah. the knock orientation grain stuff. Uh, so, yeah, like like we were saying earlier, we're all told to orient the grain this way. I think that comes from a day when shafts were sold by the thousands directly to the end user. Okay. And yep. so, you know, um, they weren't graded like they are now and sold in match dozens. The the shaft manufacturers back in the day, it was just churning out cedar shafts by the thousands every day and, 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 you know, box them up, freighting them out. And so there was lots of grain runoff, like crazy grain runoff. And they had no control over what people would grade out and coal out versus, you know, uh, whether or not somebody would uh, coal out a shaft that should be coaled out or if they would make it into a finished arrow. And so with extreme grain runoff, yeah, you have to be concerned about that orientation and if it broke on, on release, where would it go? And so that's where a lot of that comes from, but it's not the concern with these shafts uh, that it was with those shafts because of the, the, just the nature of it now where they're tightly graded and, uh, we we don't have anything with that kind of runoff going out the door. Where you have to really worry about that. Um, that's that's great. That, to know. that said, you always want to check your arrow after you've hit something hard. If you miss a target and hit rocks, like Shaper always does. Yeah. Oh uh, wow! I was about to make that. Yeah, joke. Wow! Oh. Take that. <laughs> I gotta stop posting. Well, see, I proved I've been listening to your guys. Th- thanks, man. Yeah, Appreciate it. Good. You, you'll uh, you'll continue to get guy. my business, Carson. <laughs> I had one arrow today that I couldn't hit the broadside of a barn with, and I, it had me down in the ravine a few times. So yeah. He's the one that loses I, them. I at least find mine. They might be broken, but I find them. Well, you always, yeah, if you, if you find them intact and they are obviously broken, 
a good thing to do is just hold it by the knock and tap it against the toe of your boot or shoe and uh, listen for any, you know, kick or any, yep. any, yeah, any, anything I, off. That's a quick, easy way to test them. Yeah. I had that happen to me and I, uh, when, when I shot, not only did I get the biggest welt, I mean, it, it just happened to be the day I didn't wear my arm guard and I got the biggest welt and I also dry fired, uh, one of my favorite bows. So it, the, the, the arrow I, blew up. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if, oh man, it's I don't probably know. Your inferior not gluing that caused it. I used Duco back off. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if I, if I hit the ass end of it when I was shooting. I've had that happen. If you, if you end up with an arrow, that's not like, like what you're describing, I've experienced and yeah. it's, it's been the knock was, I, I, you know, not quite Robin Hooded it, but mm-hmm. had a field point. Bump it. Hit that knock in such a way that it, you know, cracks it or starts a crack or just. Yeah, exactly. Uh, unseats it. Yeah. And, and then you're like, what the heck just happened? You know, the bow like goes off like a gun in your hand. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it was. Arrow's, arrow's doing the little swinging around thing in the air right in front of you. It was, it was, uh, I think it was last, last spring. Or it was right, probably when I started messing around with these. But the arrow was fine. There was nothing wrong with the arrow. I just split the knock in half, and I think the arrow went about four or five feet to my left and about five yards in front of me. And man, my yep. arm blew up like immediately. It was like you looked at it and watched it blow up. You know, it's one of those. But yeah. I was I was more concerned about the bow. It's um, it was it was my whole made and from from Chad and and he had, he had recently passed and there's no replacing that thing. So I was so scared that there was something wrong with it, but thank God it was fine. All um, good bows have a good, good yeah. dry fire too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so after that, yeah, I check my knocks every time. If I hear an arrow hit another, just slap it up against the side of it when I'm shooting, I'm checking my knocks. Yeah. I don't yeah, that's like this person. At, at Kalamazoo, he pulled his arrows out of the targets and he dropped stop, one and his stop. knock popped off. Stop. <laughs> Stop. Well, that was probably because he's such a good shot. He he that, hit that knock yep. with another arrow. That's and, exactly what it is. <laughs> what did you pay him before this podcast, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> he's ordered a lot of chefs. <laughs> well, good oh, customer. Man. Shut your mouth, Schaefer. <laughs> no, I just I've experienced the same thing. I lose a lot of knocks, and I just have to assume that's because I'm a good shot. And I'm that's like, it. That's you know, it. Slapping, just... slapping arrows. <laughs> We're excellent shots. It's not our fault. Oh, that's too good. So, <laughs> so throughout that, I did remember my next question, and I came up with a third question, and I wrote them down. So we're on they're, a roll out. Yeah. <laughs> right. So straightening. Are huh? you? I I often hear two arguments about hand straightening versus using like an ace roller and compressing the compressing the wood to straighten. Do you have a preference either way? Do you find ones? more permanent or better than the other? So all of my experiences is, is with Doug fur. I mean, I've, I've straightened some cedar and, and some sick spruce and some other odd, you know, ash and whatnot. And, but the bulk of my majority of course is with this Doug fur. So uh, I've never needed a roller for straightening it. And I felt like if the arrow shaft is that far off that it needs, that much force and compression to straighten it, um, it, you know, you might just move on to the next arrow shaft. But 
I, it's, I don't have experience with the roller. I've never needed it. It's always with ease. It's just the sight down it, uh, flex it against the palm of your hand. You know, you, you shift your hand up and down, uh, to place your palm where you need to apply the pressure and it doesn't take much, you know, you just get a feel for it. And, uh, that's all it takes with the Doug fur. Um, one, one tip about hand straightening, if you want, if you're going for just like superbly straight arrow shafts, uh, probably the best practice is, is what, uh, TJ Conrad's outlined in his book, that, uh, traditional bowling and handbook. And it's to, you know, if you're not in a hurry, go through those shafts, straighten each one, um, set them aside and, and just leave them alone for a day or two, come back, straighten them again if they need. And uh, just repeat that maybe three times before you seal them, and that's that's a that's kind of the best practice as far as getting them superbly straight. Because um, because wood, you know, if it's out of straight, it's for a reason. You know, there's a little bit of tension in the wood on one side just because of the way the tree grew, uh, and it might want to return to that position even after you've initially straightened it. Generally, sealing it. And, you know, sealing it from the changes in temperature and humidity are going to keep that straight. And uh, but if you want to just kind of go the extra mile, that'd be the, the best, best approach to do it a couple times. I don't personally do that, <laughs> but uh, you could go that far. Shepard, do you have that makes sense. Uh, I do not. You should get I know. That. My my current routine is I, I go through them all before I taper them or anything. After I taper them and weigh them, I, I then basically I dip them, look down, straighten if I need to after the first dip, weigh them, dip them again, straighten them. And I basically just kind of go through the same routine between each dip. And usually by the time they're, the final dip's been done and they're fleshed, they've They've held straight. Like I said, I've had to hardly do it with any of them, but that's generally the routine I have found works fairly well for myself, but probably not quite as good as TJ's way. That, that book's got what, Carson. What's there like forty pages or fifty pages on wood arrow building in that book? Yeah, it's a yeah, it's like in that. depth. It's a great, it's a great reference book for anybody who's get if if they want to find like a catch-all resource for getting into traditional archery and they they are uh, somebody who likes learning from a printed resource as opposed to just videos that is the book to get absolutely and the best the best part is like the was the first chapter which is like maybe 50 pages is all just history it's everything about yes. like Ishi yeah. or Fred or Glenn. It's it's, it, yeah. it's all Keith kinds Compton, of Art Young, yeah Compton yeah books. it's yep. so good it's a great book I read that book in a rainstorm in Texas at this park. It, it was like my daughter was like, you know, like six weeks old or something. And we decided to go camping. It was, and it was just a downpour. We were like stuck in this tent. And like when it downpours in, in Texas, it downpours. And it was blowing and lightning and thunder. And we just were cooped up in a tent. And I remember reading that and just like, it really reignited my passion for traditional archery, like learning that history. Like I'd heard a lot of these names before, but it really put them all on the map for me. Yeah. He, he definitely gets into it there. It's a great book. 
Absolutely. Uh, what, what, going back to training, and you, you kind of outlined your process, Shaper. I, I'll, I'll throw my two cents in on how I do it. I will just go through a dozen shafts, or I, I like to make up two dozen at a time. It's just if I'm going to be doing it, might as well double it up. This total sales pitch, but uh, <laughs> no, I really do. Like I make two dozen at a time, and uh, I, I don't spend a whole lot of time trying to get them just insanely straight i'll just go through okay you know little tweak there little tweak there okay yep those are good and i'll start the process you know of course staining oh oh okay i'm gonna just make a note here i got this paper <laughs> uh so i'll do that and then i'll go dip them um stain them dip them whatever and then that's where like i've got a few buddies that just skip the cresting process they're like yeah there's no need for that it's just fancying them up i don't need that level of fancy i i do it um because that's a really good place to check the straightness of your arrow right when you've got yeah. something on a crested blade and it's out of straight you'll know real quick if it's mm-hmm. wobbling and rather than if i've got an arrow that doesn't like straighten up real quick with just a quick sight down it and flex if it if I put it back on there and it's still got a little wobble, a little hop in it, I will just designate it with a, a separate line. Like, I'll put a different line on there, um, and that just designates it. In my cresting paint design, I'll add a separate line just to designate it as a off arrow, and that one will get a blunt and flu-flu um, fletching. And, okay. and with that, you know, extra fletching, you're not going to be able to – you'll never notice that it wasn't as straight as the others. And so I generally only end up with a couple of those out of a, a two dozen batch. And that's just about right, you know, for me and having flu arrows, but that's, that's how I go about it. And if I get a couple on there that are um, on the other end of the spectrum, if they're just like spinning like a top. And I mean, you look down at that end of the shaft way out there and it's just, there's no movement. It's spinning perfect. I'll designate that with a different mark a uh, different cresting line and that, that one's going to get a broad head and hopefully, you know, I end up with six. That's the killing stick. Of those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's, uh, I guess the main reason I still take the time to crest arrows is I like having that opportunity in the process to, um, easily assess straightness while I'm, you know, prettying them up. Yeah. It's I know there's one. been a few times where I've had one on my spin, right. And I just like, admire the knock-in and the point-in at how true they're spinning and just go, this is a piece of wood. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, that's a bro- put a broadhead on that one. All right, all right, Carson. So, so I'm the I'm the HVAC guy that comes home and like I, I I do HVAC all day long at work and I come home and I don't do anything to my home system. Are are you the guy that uh-huh. builds arrows all day and only has like a dozen arrows to his name or do you actually continue and build some more for yourself i mean you, you know what i'm getting at like, I, the day job kind of ruins it for you i have not fetched a dozen arrows in over a year <laughs> i i've uh i just traded suzanne st charles for another two dozen shafts from her no uh 18 count is the 18 count that she had real nice tightly matched and it was in my specs she just happened to send me this picture, like, thanks for these shafts, you know, made these up. I'm like, wait, did you say those are 67 to 69 pounds fine? And, <laughs> you know, they're going to, 
they're going to finish out at 620. Oh, my God. What, what, how many shafts do you need here? Well, I'm, we'll I'm going to need those back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I was just chatting with her the other night, and I think she was mad at you for taking those from her, actually. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I offered her, like, this was through Facebook Messenger. I offered her uh, what I thought was a pretty generous offer um, on some some lighter spine that I happen to be overstocked on and have been for a long time, but she likes them. She, you know, she can go through them. They're really nice. And she gets a lot of really tightly matched arrows out of them. And, uh, I, I made this offer. I thought it was pretty generous and just nothing. She didn't reply back. I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> so I waited a little bit, but I wanted those arrows so bad. I like, I, I anted up, I anted up. Before I, didn't put back. I was like, how about this many of these arrows? She, she said deal. So, Oh man. Oh, it's too funny. I, I thought I was getting good at cresting and then I saw her stuff and I was like, Oh God, I suck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Her, She's amazing. Yeah, paid, she mixes paint, you know? Oh she, yeah. I like, get this, like an insane color palette going from mixing paints and, and that fade out with the different tones. Yeah, yeah how, how it goes incredible. like it, it goes like a, a, a half inch of one shade of blue to a half inch lighter to a half inch lighter than that. It's like uh-huh. she's got some Bob Ross stuff going on over there or something. It's insane. It, it's There's absolutely no happy beautiful. little accidents there. No, there. Yeah, that's all on purpose. <laughs> it's I, 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 I've been on that. What's that cresting page you got me in on face on Facebook? What is that? The crest. The crest. Oh my God, the stuff she posts in there is just insane. It's it's amazing. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, she's uh, she's she's been doing it a while. She knows what she's doing. Clearly, it's in the blood. I, I have eight yeah. colors to choose Literally. from, and I have to go get my wife to help me choose colors. <laughs> <laughs> I can't I can't match my jeans with my t-shirt. You can't. <laughs> yeah, I'm one of those guys that like you you start out with this half baked idea of this color scheme, and you don't really think it through, but you just know it's going to be awesome, and then you get done, you're like. Oh God, these are ugly. What have I done? Yeah, it's like the the most recent set I did. It had a blue stain for a crown, and I, I did some uh, test crown sections on an old arrow. And I went black, green, purple, green, black. And I'm like, man, that looks pretty good. That'll look good. And then my wife goes, huh, kind of reminds me of Barney. I'm like, wow, thanks. Never gonna unsee that now. So they did not run out that color anymore. <laughs> How yeah, you doing, kids? Yeah. <laughs> damn, damn, Barty ruined some good color combos. <laughs> they quickly changed colors to green or something. <laughs> yeah, those would have been oh. some coked out arrows. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, man. <laughs> but, uh, so, third question. Good thing I wrote it down. So, whether or not you want to go through it like somebody calls, what's your general, like, this is the bow I'm shooting, walk through to choosing a spine What's your general process, if you don't mind telling? Uh, it's uh, total spitballing. I just whatever. No, it, uh, <laughs> it really is. Well, if I tell them the wrong the wall, spine, I don't think two dozen. <laughs> <laughs> so it uh, it really comes down to like like I used to play around on Stu's dynamic calculator a lot, and that's where I learned how much arrow length and draw length really do have an effect 
and kind of where that break point is for how much point weight affects uh, spine and, and 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 then you know how much center cut or or how close to center cut or how far from center cut you are, how much those factors affect uh, dynamic spine needs. And, and and really, I rely a lot on like real world experience and I shoot with a lot of guys on a regular basis and I kind of know their setups and what works for them. And, you know, falling back on that with an understanding of the factors that, that do affect dynamic spine and, and which ones are the most important or, you know, most weighted factors. Uh, that's kind of how I get there. But yeah, I, I ask all of the important things you know most guys anymore are shooting fast fly but you know you always ask to make sure uh what you know bow model it is if i'm unfamiliar with it we'll talk about whether it's a hill style long bow versus a more performance based you know deflex reflex how extreme is the deflex reflex how long is it versus how long the draw length is to just get an idea of like the performance factor of the bow you know is this a is this uh kind of soft send off bow or is this a um speed demon model you know um and then if we can figure out if it's cut to center or past center um you know there's known i can look that up generally if it's if we don't know um but uh where, where, where can i go with this to be kind of useful here uh one of the things that i try and figure out with the customer is is uh is arrow length a fixed factor for you. Like if somebody uses their point on for an aiming system, then they need to keep their arrow length consistent. Uh, but if that's not the case and they can tune with arrow length, assuming they don't have like the maxed out draw length, you know, they don't need a full length arrow because they've got a 30 inch draw. If that's not the case and they can play around with arrow length by half inch or an inch, um, then I feel real confident skipping the whole test pack step and getting them to the appropriate spine and letting them tune with brace height and length to, uh, to, you know, fine tune. If, uh, if they have a fixed air length, they need a fixed air length because they shoot point on, or they've got a long draw and there's just no room to cut down. Um, then it's, it's kind of one of those things where, you could have one guy with the same bow and an identical setup and you could have another guy and just because of the way they get off the string might need two different spines. You know, there's, there's some variables in there we just can't account for. And if you can't tune with length or, or, or brace height much, then, then we might want to go the test pack route, start there to ensure we get the right, um, the right spine. All right. So out of curiosity, let's see. So my, I shoot a, uh, fairly heavily reflex deflex longbow, 60 inches, uh, 54 at 29. I draw 29. I typically leave them full length just because I get an extra taper or two when I, I may or may not break them. Right. Uh, fast, well, D97 string. I would say cut two yeah. center. And I typically shoot 160 grain point, but I'm flexible on that. Where would, where do you think you point weight? Point weight's another way to tune. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't yeah. Go into that, but yeah, that's another way to tune. Where would um, you ballpark it? 
Just off the top of my head, I'm thinking 65, 70s, but uh, with the full length era, you might need 70, 75s. Uh, All right. Well, that's I. Well, I can set right now. I'm shooting 70, 75s, and yeah. I would say you're pretty spot on because those fly pretty well. But I was literally telling Chris before this podcast that I was thinking 65, 70s might be more forgiving. Yeah, so. if you're shooting 160 grain, you know, yeah, 70, 75, you know, total full length. Just all you did was take a 32 inch shaft and taper it. You, you know, it seems like 70, 75 makes sense. But um, if you're going to take a half inch or an inch off the length uh, or play around with 145s or 125s, you know, it's definitely 65, 70s. Yeah, because I know right now I've got a. I'm trying to figure out what I want to shoot for broadheads going into turkey season. And once I get these new ones fleshed up, it was going to be, well, if I think they fly well enough, I'll buy 160 grain heads. If not, I might buy 125s and bump down a spine range. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've noticed just my personal experience, and it could be like I'm shooting self bows that are not cut to center. And I know the dynamics are different when you're shooting bows that are cut center or close to. But I've found that I can generally go from – a 125 head to 160 without changing spine. Like I can shoot that same arrow with those two different heads and it won't make any detectable difference. But as soon as I jump to 190, good Lord, it, it makes a big difference. <laughs> hmm. uh, and so I, I don't know if that's true for everyone, but that's been my personal experience. And uh, yeah. I got a little question, but it's a little it's a little off topic. Well, maybe not, but um, what are your most readily available spines? I mean, like actually, what is your most sought after spine range, and what are your most readily available? Uh, yeah. So it's not a real simple answer. Um, fifty fifty fives used to be really really hard to keep in stock. Okay. Uh, it was always we were always chasing that group for whatever reason. It's just it wasn't that we didn't make a lot of it. It's just that it was really sought after. Um, anymore, it's uh, just because of the logs that I've gotten in the last year or two. Sixty, sixty-fives, and sixty-five, seventies have been really hard to keep in stock, and, and even seventy, seventy-fives. Um, I had a basically a good amount of material that was producing really high spine, but it would taper off down into 70, 75s and just kind of stop there. And then I had a good amount of wood that covered, you know, kind of a lot of 50, 55, 55, 60s, and they would taper off at 60, 65, not a lot coming through there. Um, always have a lot of low spine. We had this really big log that was just super straight grain, beautiful wood, but it was like, all 35 40s 40 45s uh, and it was like a five foot diameter log you think maybe the bigger trees would have higher spine but it's not the case uh so we got a just a ton of material out of that one log that's still just in in bins and places out here at the shop you know uh um, from years ago so always have a lot of those in stock um yeah it's it's hard to say it seems like the most sought after spine has shifted a little bit upwards in recent years from the 50, 55s and 55, 60s to now like a 60, 65 seems to be a lot of people looking for those. What do you, what do you have a lot of, a lot of in stock right now? Nothing, like, nothing. 
damn it. I'm trying. I'm trying to figure out how I can shift shift into like the easiest to to obtain shafts. You know, I'm trying to like how much how many inches do I have to cut off? <laughs> no, no, I I hate that people even have to think like that. I I really want to get a point where anything anything you need, I have it. But yeah, right. I I do think that's possible. It's a possibility in the future that I'll be uh, well stocked. It's really. I really have gotten behind mainly because of just carryover from last year's difficulty and getting material and your work solved. And then, yeah, yeah. It, but the machines here, like honestly making the air shafts, like a, from a time standpoint, mm-hmm. when you boil it down to a per air shaft, uh, number, it's not much time in, in making the air shaft. There is a lot of time, of course, Grading, straightening, right, right, spining, weight matching, um, but uh, yeah, it's just uh, and also I had some problems with the sander this winter where I was ending up with the like every other shaft that I was grading, I would uh, throw it in the bin to sand it down to five sixteenths because it had a, a basically a blemish from the sander, and so that you know makes it kind of hard to keep up with your your main inventory of 11 three seconds when every other shaft you're looking at is going into a bin to be you know sanded down mm-hmm. at some time when i you know some later date so i guess what i'm getting at is uh it shouldn't be too much longer before uh you know if you need 70 75s hey here, i got them however many you need so uh, we're getting there well luckily for chris i mean he can cut like half an arrow off to get the spine he needs so Hey, that's a, it's advantageous. <laughs> He's just jealous. Don't mind him. <laughs> oh, man. So, another question. The the spine range, for those who don't know, the like 50-55, obviously, the higher the numbers, the stiffer the arrow gets. Where did those numbers get based off originally? You mean how well, did that start? I mean, yeah. Okay. That's a good question. Uh, they're, I mean, they're they're pulled out of thin air, essentially. I mean, they don't, you know, a 50, 55 doesn't really mean anything. It's, uh, it, it was an assigned number, right? Um, but it was, it goes back to AMO, AMO spine, American, no, archery manufacturers uh, organization, I guess, AMO. I want to say that was probably the 60s when it was kind of a, a budding industry and some of the fiberglass technologies, bear archery, uh, they were able to take manufacture of, of bows to this level to meet, you know, to, mm-hmm. to make it like a sporting goods thing. Like you, you know, it's it, like a uh, standard. You could, yeah, yeah, just it was like you could go buy a tennis racket or a recurve at your local sporting goods place and or you know, you could go down to the hardware store and, and pick up some uh fasteners and grab a dozen arrows on your way out. You know, it was just a household thing, uh, at that time, you know, and, and I wanna say the probably the late sixties is the heyday. It's just my take on the history of it. I wasn't around then. Uh but anyway, back then, based on the bows and the string technology, 
it was and people's draw length it people's had a people generally had a shorter draw length i think part of it was just technique the the uh, technique of the day was different i don't think it was that people were on average smaller than maybe they were a little bit but uh, anyway with it, it, the idea is that a 50 55 spine shaft was suitable for a 50, 55 pound bow, you know, any bow in that range. And and that was also, you know, 125 grain head was, that was what standard. everyone shot. Yeah. 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 And I would like to say there was a reason for 125 grain head being the standard. They just fly the best. I mean, I have played around with all the heavy stuff and on a wood arrow shaft, carbons may be very well different. I do not have experience with carbons, but on a wood shaft, and for me, I always go back to 125. It just seems to balance out in a way that allows me to be a better shot, just more forgiving. Um, when I when I played around with heavier heads, 190s, or even woody weights, and getting total point weight up, you know, 250, and and, and of course I'm adjusting the spine accordingly, as you should. Mm-hmm. Uh, going for real heavier overall air weights and whatnot. It just, uh, they just seem more finicky to tune and, uh, more finicky to form and, 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 uh, lapses in form. So I always go back to 125 me personally, but like I said earlier, you can generally go from 125 to 160 or in my experience without noticing, uh, uh, a, a change. Yeah. I think I started shooting 160s because when I first got into wood arrows, I wanted to shoot the the cutthroat glue-ons, and the lightest option they had was 160s at the time. Yeah, and that that looks. I haven't shot those, but they look like a very solid, well thought out design. I got I no, I got no idea why I started shooting 160s. I think that was the only reason I did, and I just I, that's what I've had stock of. So <laughs> that's where they've always sat. Probably because I didn't think 125 was heavy enough. I was just just because that's the stigma out there or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, I've I've come accustomed to 160s and that they're doing good for me, so I'll stick with it. Yeah, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with the 160. I don't want to imply that you know you need to change anything. Yeah, yeah. I, in my experience, playing around with especially like 190 i think also you know the distribution of the weight on a 190 head it's, it's a longer head too mm-hmm. right so you're kind of compounding that that uh factor and having to have an even stiffer spine um and and for chasing foc with wood arrows it's uh diminishing returns because as you go up in head weight you have to go up in spine to accommodate right. that have your head and as you go up in the spine the, the mass weight of the arrow shaft also goes up like it's a very strong correlation between weight and and stiffness and so uh pretty soon you've got you know maybe you gained a couple percentage points in foc but now you've also added 200 grains to your total air weight and so yeah um, oh yeah is there a fairly consistent uh like I noticed both 70 all right the two dozen 70 75s I bought were roughly the same weight range is that fairly consistent in a spine range or is it dependent on the tree uh it depends on the tree like sometimes there it's always a bell curve you know within a given tree like there's always this like bulk of it in the middle and then it kind of tapers out in terms of both spine and mass weight but one 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 log might have 70, 75s that are on the 
the lower end of what we generally see. And, and then the neck fog might have a uh, mass weight on the higher end, what we generally see. Because I know by the time I put points on these suckers, I'm going to have some serious Lincoln logs going downrange. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Any of the higher spine stuff I've had come through process in the last year or two, that, that really nice log that had like up to 80, 85, 90, 99, 5, and it was, it was on the heavier side of mass weight for sure. Yeah. I think, I think I did the math. I'm going to be around 715. And, uh, that's, I, I personally don't mind it, but man, they're going to hit like a freight train. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just came into some, yeah, ra- that's, that's on the heavier side. I just came into some razor heads. So I'm thinking about going down to 125s just because I want I want to kill something with a razor head. Um, yeah. So that would that would change a, a few things, but I'll figure that out. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, it might push you down into 65, 70s. Yeah. You, you, I, I would only make that jump if you're also willing to like maybe adjust the length out another half inch just to. What. You know, when, when, needed. when we were talking last fall, before right before the season, I was concerned about running a full length shaft, and you were able to—I mean—and you were spot on with it too. You were able to tell me if I wanted an extra inch or two inches or whatever. Like I think I was cutting two inches off at that point, and you're like, "If you want two more inches, you could go up to this spine, and that'll give you exactly like one inch." more arrow length or something like that. What, what, what's, is there a formula to that or something? What, what was that? It's, it's generally, I mean, it's pretty close that, uh, basically an inch of shaft length is equivalent to about a, uh, one spine group in dynamic spine. Okay. Okay. Did I say that right? Yeah. I think think so. I, I can't yeah. believe the amount of times we've said shaft, wood, and stiff, and none of us have cracked <laughs> up yet tonight. Cause, that whole conversation. Cause usually it doesn't take much. We've kept our shit together tonight. I'm I'm impressed by us. Go us. Want an extra because I was about to die there. I, yeah, I need to like I need yeah. R- record this as uh I need to be able to pull this up as a citation or a reference when I'm told that I'm immature by the next girl. Seriously, this is impressive. No, we thought yeah. We had uh, we had Eric McKee on. He he just purchased uh, Great Northern. Great Northern. And we were talking about like, oh, yeah. strap-ons for a little minute. Oh, holy <laughs> shit! Oh my yeah. goodness! Oh, it's funny. But anyway, you, was that in the text or in the? the I, I forget. Text? But he, somebody somebody was was it Eric that said he had to change it from you can't say strap-on anymore. You got to say something else. I think Gary Hall wanted Gary, it, Gary, Gary, to yes. change, and then and then Eric. We we're, were in a group text because we were getting new we were getting those new quivers that you saw with the pick a spot dumbass on the back of them. Uh-huh. And, and uh, Eric texted me, "Are you gonna get strap-ons?" And I, I texted him back saying, "Yeah, I was gonna get a strap-on. Now I can't write that. We don't I'm swing gonna, that way." I was gonna get, yeah. and then I ended up typing. I'm going to get an adjustable strap on. Well, that's no better. So I, I left that. And then in parentheses, I wrote, you really need to change the name of this parentheses. And then yeah. I just went with it. You get a custom, a custom strap on. Custom. Uh, my, my wife loves it when I start talking about bear shaft tuning. She's like, oh, dear God. Oh, that's a, that's one that, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, bear shaft tuning. That's funny. I was just thinking that the other day, like how, 
how have I not like realized how ridiculous that is? <laughs> oh, it sounds terrible. If you're if you're not into this, you I mean, I'm sure we're getting judged. But uh I mean, there's a place for bear shafting, but I wouldn't say it's traditional archery. <laughs> hey, my wife's pregnant. What do you think happened? <laughs> how how'd that how that bear shaft tuning go? Um yeah. I was point on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I I thought I heard her saying you fibbed a little bit on your draw length, but whatever, we all do. He collapsed. <laughs> yeah, gonna uh, have to start shooting a trigger. Oh. oh. Uh, okay. I so, don't know if that's gonna stay in or not, but that was priceless. <laughs> Dad, if you're listening, I am truly sorry. Uh, it's it's all right. We'll get there. Uh, so, so let's shift gears. Carson, how was hunting season? Oh, what hunting season? Oh, no. <laughs> oh. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, for me, that's it's just, I've been, I've been depressed, man. I've been depressed the last couple of years hunting and fishing. It's just gotten so much worse out here out west. Every, every, uh, sorry to be a Debbie Downer here, but man, it sucks. Like, What's the biggest hang up? Uh, oh, it's just, like I was starting to get pretty good at elk hunting. Like I was getting close, getting within range on a regular basis. I went from like having a hard time getting close to elk to, you know, getting within my range inside 30 yards, mm-hmm. you know, multiple times in the season, which was before really hard. As I felt like I figured it out, you know, but it seemed like at the same time that I figured that out, everybody became an elk hunter out here and it was just the the goalpost moved on me and it's like damn it's so hard like to call these things in they're just so well educated out here in oregon we've got we've got a lot of public land which is a blessing but Mm -hmm. we we have a lot of access to that public land just from the historical land use lots of logging um even in the wilderness you know there's old logging roads where you can really cover a lot of ground just walking in behind a gate you know you can you can get into the heart of the wilderness pretty easily in a lot of places um and, and with onyx maps that's the one that got me two years ago i'd never used onyx maps until two years ago and i i downloaded it and used it and i here i've got this amazing tool for covering lots of land and marking wallows and rubs and so does everybody else and it was so depressing to use that thing and i thought this is why there's all these nut nuts out in the wilderness these guys that like i run into i'm like this guy seems like he'd be scared to spend the night out here like what is he doing out here but he's not scared because he's got a little blue dot on his phone that tells him where he's at all the time (laughs) and i i had to do this the hard way you know so i just feel cheated you know learning how to use the compass and and these uh you know, having to go to the map store and buy my paper maps and mm-hmm. USGS quadrants. And it's, and then that to me is such a, uh, big part of elk hunting. The, the, you know, as we talked about the, uh, as we refer to the, the woodsmanship skills and kind of pride myself in that. And it just feels like it's, it's, uh, it's all changed. The game's changed so much, but, uh, it's just so much. There's big money in it, you know, anymore. Um, Insta fame. Everybody's in L corner. Yeah, yeah. yeah yep. It's just, it's uh, it's rough. But uh, I really, I don't know. I need to work on my attitude and just. Uh, I'm right there with you. If that makes you feel better. It, it's yeah. a tough one. I mean, like Western hunting has blown up, and 
and I, I don't know I don't know what it is if it's I don't know why 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 is why has everybody all, every, all of a sudden everybody wants to be a, an elk hunter or like you know is everybody's going out west I mean it, it's it's Joe Rogan it's Joe Rogan it's Cameron Haynes yeah it's, yeah it's exposure to it as a cool thing so like all of a sudden guys who are into hardcore stuff see it as just like another another challenge yeah another challenge and uh it's kind of going through the same thing challenge it should be a challenge you know that's why we love it it's a challenge yeah uh, yeah yeah. it it means something to to accomplish uh you know taking a, a big bull elk but uh it's just become so accessible it, yeah, it's, it's ruined it. So I, I think so, I think social media is killing it too. I, I got a I got a, a friend. She lives outside of, of Seattle, and she is a huge hiker. And she's been out there, I think, maybe over ten years now. And she was telling me that, like, in the last five years, the the massive influx of people going hiking now just to get like social media pictures is just insane. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's driving her crazy. Cause she's been out there forever, you know, and now all of a sudden all her favorite trails are jam packed with people taking selfies. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It's, uh, it's, uh, exposure of these like little gems that mm-hmm. you kind of would have to find about through word of mouth or through like a little, you know, a book or using um, a map and a compass. Yeah, now yeah. it's just like I followed um, uh, Hot Springs hashtag on Instagram, and now I know where every awesome has- uh, Hot Springs in Oregon is. You know, it's like yeah. that easy. And uh, yeah, so anyway, yeah, so hunting wasn't like all horrible. I mean, we saw I saw some help. Uh, let me let me try and fix my head here. So all right, <laughs> um, get out of the depression. So yeah, it was it was a rough. Like I was super busy. It's my first year running Sherwood by myself and wow. just trying to get caught up and like and, and get things tied up at home to be able to take off. And I had never boarded my dogs in a kennel before. Found a kennel that seemed like a good, you know, reputable kennel. So did that, dropped my dogs off and uh blasted over the mountains over to the east side to go hunt uh eastern Oregon. For, I think I had about six days before the end of season. So it was the end of season, which isn't my first choice, but it just made more sense this, that year. And, uh, yeah, this is last year. And I got over there in the middle of the night, like two in the morning. I got out a few places and just bugled off into the distance after walking away from the rig and uh nothing it was just it was just quiet you know super quiet woods just not no mice screwing around nothing not not a peep anywhere in the middle of the night and uh so i ended up finally getting to my destination spot but i got it there you know wee hours of the morning and i slept till maybe 10 or 11. got up getting my boots on shot my bow a little bit. I had not been shooting my bow at all going into season. I'm usually pretty good about getting myself tuned up with at least three or four days of lots and lots of arrows right before I go out. Not, it didn't happen. And, uh, so anyway, I got a few arrows off there in camp to get my gear ready and, and heading out. So it's this midday and I, there's this place, there's a saddle 
up on this knob right above camp that I'd gotten into elk before. And they would sometimes bet on that south-facing slope, which is what I'm going to be approaching from, um, from camp. But I felt like with this unusually warm weather, they were going to be on the north side bedded. And so my goal was to get up in that saddle, and I and I it, there's another knob just on the other side of the road, and I remember discovering a real heavy crossing trail where they go from one knob to the other based on you know getting pushed around. And so I I'm going to go down to that trail and check it for tracks and get an idea if they're on this knob or that knob. And I went down there, and it looked like tracks from that night leading up to knob A. So I'm going to go up knob A. And I crossed the little creek at the bottom, and oh, yeah, they've been down in there all night. There's lots of elk sign. So I go and I start switch backing up this knob. It's super steep, semi open, and just kind of taking my time. I didn't want to get all super sweaty and I'm out of shape. I hadn't done anything to get in elk shape before season. And just going slow up there and trying to stay on the tracks. Kind of lost their tracks, but had a pretty good idea that they're up over that knob on the north side so finally get up there and uh get right up on top to this little saddle and i'm just kind of scanning because it really opens up on top this is pretty for for this area it's it's pretty open a lot of the area over there is just really uh dense and hard to see much um here it's kind of open so of course i just slow down stop looking around scanning looking for rubs, looking for any sign up on top. I've seen a lot of, a lot of fresh rubs up on uh, top of this knob. It's fairly flat on top, uh, kind of the side of the saddle. And so I'm just looking up and down and, and uh, the wind's perfect. It's in my face, like, like pretty consistent, just a steady slight wind right in my nose. And I wasn't standing there very long looking around before it hit me like a, you know, brick wall, this elk up my nose. And so I just froze and started looking with my eyes and sure enough, straight ahead, you know, the wind is coming straight to me. So it's basically up wind and there's this bull. I just see her antler tips. And I thought it was a young bull, like a little raghorn or, or maybe even just a little spike fork had his head down feeding and I could just barely see his bridge of his back and antlers. And so I've only been hunting maybe an hour, hour and a half. And here I, I, I'm on elk, and so I'm feeling like this is going to be a pretty good hunt. And uh, turned out it was all garbage after this. But um, anyway, uh, I happened to have stopped in this nice little cover, this little spot. that had a couple lodge poles to my left and, and uh, had this kind of dark little shadowy place to crouch down into. So I crouched down into that, and he's just down the other side of this saddle in this it in the open in the sun feeding his way up to me so like, oh my god this is perfect and he's about maybe 60 yards out when i first see him and he lifts his head up and he's like a nice he's either a big five he might have that little teeny fork on the back to be a six i really did not study his antlers like it's i mean it's, uh, to me he's just nice bull all right what do i have to do to try and get an arrow and so i'm just hunkered down He's feeding up towards me. He stopped several times to look back down the hill. Something's got his attention down there. And eventually I hear another bugle down there and figure out, okay, there's another bull. And that's what he keeps kind of, he's keeping tabs on this other bull. 
And uh, so this is the only elk I see. I don't see any cows. Haven't heard anything but this other far-off bull. I haven't made a peep. I'm just going to sit here crouched down. It looks like, based on how much he's fed up towards me and the direction he's going, he's going to feed right past me. And there's a pretty good window in, like, the sweet spot of, like, 12 to 14 yards. It looks like he's going to probably pass through. So I'm starting to feel pretty confident about everything. And I've got a narrow knock at this point. I've slid my backpack off, my quiver off. I've got another arrow right at my feet, ready to knock if I need to. And he gets up to this point, maybe 40 yards, right on the edge of 40. And he stops and he looks back down the hill where we heard that other bugle from. And I stand up and start drawing my bow back and he is framed up between these two trees perfectly and he is looking back downhill and there's a slight grade from me down towards him maybe like a 10 to 15 yard drop at this 40 yards out and he is stretching his side that's facing me as he's looking back oh. down the other side it's like opened up just like the best view i could ever imagine of elk vitals and his attention is totally the other direction and i start to come into full draw like this is a shot I probably should be able to make in this circumstance with everything being perfect if I had done a lot of practicing. But as soon as I started coming back to full draw, I had zero confidence. I felt like my arrow could have hit him in the tip of the t- antlers or in his hoof. I just <laughs> it did not. Yeah, that's what I, I felt like. That's my, my, my window of accuracy, like basically from hoof to tip of his antler. And so I let down and crouched back down. I was like, just be patient, you know, uh, just be patient. He's going to keep coming this way. And as I crouched back down, I realized, you know, there's just, it was real crunchy. And so I'm trying to clear out all the crunchiness from under my feet, but there's, you know, just years of these little lodge pole twigs and cones built up and I'm clearing those out as he's got his head back down and he's feeding again, coming this way. And he's got his head down and I'm clearing this stuff out as he's chewing. And, all of a sudden his head jerks up looking my way. And I just thought, Oh God, you know, my heart sank like I just screwed it up and he heard something, but he didn't have me pinned. It wasn't like his ears were just like, you know, on me exactly, but he definitely heard something. He heard me, you know, but he just didn't have it, the exact location pinned down and he went back to feeding. So I thought, okay, all right, we're good. We're good. He's going to keep coming on that line. But after that point, he started veering off a little further away and yeah. just started feeding a little bit further away. Just enough. It, yeah, exactly. It, uh, it, it is so frustrating to be that close and so far away. But uh, so I thought, you know, maybe I'll call him in or loop around on him. But, you know, I made a little bit of noise as I was moving around trying to get more covered, a decent call in. Heard him crash off a little bit. So I just desperately cow called at him. And of course, he crashed off. and Anyway, that was that was that. That was a close. That was my only close call. No, no arrows loosed it at uh, animals this uh, last year. So. Well, if it makes you feel better, you got closer to an elk than I did this year. Did you get after some elk this year? No, none. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, sorry. I hope I got closer than you did. I would hope. <laughs> no, oh, I, just, I, I don't funny. leave Pennsylvania. <laughs> but I, I love funny. hearing the experience of anybody who comes out from east to hunt elk. 
and just kind of like get their take on it. Like it always. I, I'm gonna go. To me. I'm gonna go one of these days, but I'm wait. I'm waiting for my son's nine. I'm waiting for him to be like fifteen, and then he and I are both going. I, I want. Right. Awesome. I want. That's something I want to experience with him. I mean, I, I lived in Colorado for three years, and for some okay. for some stupid reason, I didn't. I didn't elk hunt because. I don't know what my problem yeah. was, but um, yeah. No, knowing what I know and, and and the area and stuff, I I want to go back out, but I want to do it when he's old enough. That's definitely my plan. It'll be an easy awesome. sell to the yeah. wife that way too. <laughs> right, right. Well, <laughs> it's uh, that's a great way to spend time with your son. I remember yeah. going with my dad when I was uh, oh, I guess I got a decent hunting hunting story where I lose an arrow um when I was about. 12 hunting elk with my dad uh first year i got to go along i was all excited and then i found out elk hunting sucks uh, <laughs> <laughs> dry and dusty and you never see anything and and uh but that's just how elk hunting is man it can be like it seems so impossible when you can't even locate them and all of this sign you're finding is all dried out and days old and seems like they're nowhere to be found and this is before like extreme elk hunting pressure, you know, this is still, well, there wasn't, a, I mean, we, we ran into like one other hunter out there. Um, anyway, we finally, we went down this little old road bed, little decommissioned road along a willow thicket on this Creek. And, uh, the wind was good and you could smell elk. You just, smell the elk are in that area we didn't know if they're still in there it was just kind of this faint elky smell in the air and they started seeing lots of sign and then all of a sudden the woods on the other side of the hill on the other side of this willow thicket just exploded i mean i you know i had no idea what was going on but it just crashed boom <laughs> crashing and this whole herd of maybe 40 or 50 head of elk came right through the willow bottoms and right up past us. And I was just like, we're caught on the middle of this road. My dad had an arrow knocked and he tried swinging on, you know, one of the trailing younger bulls in the end and, and I uh, just couldn't get a shot. They were just, I mean, they were just blowing out of there. Turns out there were some other hunters up on the other, other side and they arrowed one of them. We, uh, eventually, you know, later we kind of hoping see if they could locate it and all that. Anyway, we uh, swung way around and my dad had a pretty good idea where they might be headed. And I don't know if we got on any of those same elk, but we ended up getting on some elk. And I think we saw a cow off in the distance. Anyway, he sent me down. I didn't know what I was doing. I was, I don't know, somewhere 12 or 14, somewhere in there. First year going hunting. Elk and uh, I had old Bobbly Red Wing Hunter. No, 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 sorry, Chaparral. It was the Wing Chaparral. Um, it was Wing, but it wasn't Bobbly Wing. It was like the ski, you know, uh, sporting goods head, whatever, ski makers, tennis rack maker company that, yeah. that bought uh, Bobbly bows and Wing. And uh, that was the loudest damn bow. We always like wrapping the string <laughs> with yarn and sticking all sorts of pieces of foam on the limbs try and quiet down um there's just this garage cell bow and anyway he sent me down in this little draw and i tucked in by this root wad there's this big 
Ponderosa that fell lengthwise down this draw, and I tucked up in at the root wad, didn't know where to go. He, Dad just told me to go down in that little draw. I was like, I don't even know what to do, but I just go down there. <laughs> and sure enough, he's up there doing this little lost calf calling, and all of a sudden, here's this cow coming from the other side of the draw, coming across, and she goes down around the end of this windfall tree and just starts coming right up the tree, this downed log, right up to me, and I'm just frozen at the end of it, you know, tucked by the root wad, and she walks right up to probably four yards away from me, and I'm just, like, trying to hide my trembling, you know. <laughs> and she just looks at me, it kind of, like, looked through me, and then eventually, like, her eyes focused on me and, like, kind of got wide-eyed a little bit, and she skipped off a little ways, but then stopped at maybe... 27, 28 yards, broadside, perfectly broadside. And I drew back and let go, and, oh, my arrow just feathers, feathers kissed her, her chest hair, you know, just right under her. Oh, oh my right gosh. Right under her sternum, right behind the leg, yeah. And uh, kind of a funny story. So she, you know, at that, she kicks off again and goes up this open, I want to say, like, it's like shale, but it wasn't shale, just real rocky open hillside and uh I remember she's kind of peeling out on these rocks and she stopped up there maybe 70 yards and my dad starts he's going to call again to see if he can bring her back and he said he just sees this arrow arcing through the air (laughs) 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 it hits like right at her rear feet you know and she's gone um yeah, I was I was so wanted that opportunity back. <laughs> Giving it hell one last time. The old yeah. poke and hope. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. My God. Yeah. That had to be but awesome. I felt like it was at the same time though. It was like heartbreaking. That was it. Yeah. That, yeah. Elk are so tough because that oftentimes that's like something you know a situation like that. That was your one opportunity. Like mm-hmm. you're really lucky if you get more than one of those in a season, you, you know, and I'm talking about like at least giving it a full week out there, you know, probably really need to give it like, it, it's, it's still lucky if you get a opportunity like that in 10, 12, 14 days, you know? So when That's you, awesome. when they slip away like that, you're just like, that was, that was it. Uh, Sounds like Vermont whitetail hunting. <laughs> get that one opportunity to year. Is that how it is there? I mean, I there's a few pockets throughout the state where things get a little better, but like in the area I am, usually if I completely screw up an opportunity, I'm usually pretty pissed off because I figure it's going to be the chance. Yeah, it's rough. I, I always say, like, you know, traditional as a traditional bow hunter, what you need is uh, healthy game populations. You need a yeah. you need a target rich environment. You need lots of opportunity. It's it's really tough when you're putting that limit on yourself, and then you're also hunting hunting, uh, you know, game numbers that are down, or or you know, game that's exposed to really high predator populations or hunter populations. That's tough, man. It's tough when you combine those two things. Yeah. Luckily, I'm wildly stubborn, so it's it, it works <laughs> yeah. out well. He's yeah. committed. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> Oh, this has been a, this is awesome. awesome. This is one of my favorite podcasts. Yeah. One of my favorites we've done so far. Definitely. 
I think I think. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. I think both of us could geek out on on wood arrows for days. Oh yeah, oh, it's amazing okay. how I, simple yet complicated they can be. Oh no, kidding, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it's uh, we we get pretty technical with it, but yeah, there's there's something to be said for just putting a bunch of feathers on there and getting away with a lot. But uh, w- one thing I wanted to go back to real quick, just a tip. Yeah, go I for like it. Share, sharing on on finishing wood arrows. Um, so when you get uh, you get a dozen shaft, let's say you you went through and you made sure they're straight, and now you're getting ready to dip them. I always like to uh, I, I like to stain with like uh, either water based or alcohol based stains, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to coloring with with like crown dip paint. I always like to do stains to achieve whatever effect. But uh, so what I do is I'll stain it. And whether it's alcohol-based or water-based, it will lift the grain uh, yep. after you apply that stain. Mm-hmm. And then take like a 3-aught, 2-aught, or 3-aught steel wool. A 4-aught will work too, but like a little bit aggressive isn't bad. Um, and knock that lifted grain back down, kind of burnish it back down. And you'll end up with a really smooth finish that will take up uh, your sealant well, but not like soak up a ton of sealant. Um it's just a good first step. And so if you don't want to stain the shaft, you just want to, let's say you wanted to keep a natural color. Um, you can achieve the same thing by just taking a little damp paper towel and wetting, you know, go over like each one, one at a time. And by the time you're done with a dozen, go back to the first one and it's ready to burnish back down with the steel wool. And uh, it, it makes a noticeable difference in the, the end result of uh, your finish. What does it do? Does it make it like more porous to suck in the the the, the clear? No, kind of the opposite. Because um, just the raw shaft, what what will happen is that sealant will also wet the grain and kind of try to lift the grain as it's trying uh, to seal the grain. Yeah, okay. All if right. You're doing that beforehand. You're lifting the grain up and then you're knocking it back down. And when you when you burnish with like steel wool, like there's a tremendous amount of heat that's produced when you're you know using a little bit of pressure and and, and burnishing it. Uh, when you're stroking your shaft, uh, <laughs> and, and it really, it, it, uh, it'll set, like if it's a particularly resinous batch of wood, you yeah. know, some wood will have a little bit more pitch bleed to it. Um, it'll, it'll kind of harden that out on the surface too. There's just a lot of little benefits. And I think by knocking that lifted grain back down, you're, you're keeping the finish from, from uh, deeply penetrating, like it's still penetrating <laughs> to adhere and be a good finish. <laughs> anyway, it's a good it's, thing you don't have video. That's right. I'll have to give that a go because I've been using like a Minwax polyacrylic lately, and uh, the the one thing I don't like about it is the amount of weight it adds. So I'll be I'll be testing that to see if it drops the initial. Uh, weight gain because yeah, yeah. I, I find I'm, the I'm first sure dip is by far the uh, the heaviest. Yep, yeah, oh. it'll help with that a lot. You'll you'll notice it'll run off really really nice and smooth. It'll run off much thinner just by doing that step. You know what I I uh, I do the same thing. I use I use a water based clear coat and and I've heard a lot of people say because I always used I always used four uh steel wool. And then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. recently, I heard people say, "Don't use steel wool when you're using water-based stuff." What's your take on that? Really? 
Yeah, this I don't think I, thinking it's going to stay in there I and think get it, rusted. Generally, or, I think the, yeah, exactly. Because it sheds a little bit or something. And, it, and it's going to get in your... I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think, I think I tried, the general, uh, just in case, like some of the steel wool embeds itself in the shaft, and you don't get it off when you clean it with your paper towel or microfiber, it could potentially that, that, rust. I think that's... Uh, Sham. You know, just, well, it's just it's just overthinking and living yeah. in a potential realm. I mean, yeah, I've never noticed any problem. Um, Forot is very fine. Yeah, and, uh, and 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 can shed. And what I've noticed is you do get some in the, like where your knock paper is, where it's mm-hmm. a little rougher. Uh, it'll it'll grab. It'll paper. grab. It'll grab. It'll grab it. Yeah. 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 And yeah. I just kind of I don't I get too. <laughs> I yeah. So, you know so the the two aught and three aught being a little coarser steel wool, it doesn't shed as much. Okay. Uh, so I, I do like it for knocking the grain back down. I don't know. Um, I don't know if this is something you do, but like after I so I'll stain mine, and then I'll knock down the grain, and then I'll take them out and I'll, I'll spray them down with compressed air, just to get yeah. That's all a this, great way to get all this the crap off of it. Wool yeah. off. Yep. 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 And then if yeah, I if I do way. get some hairs from the steel wool, I was always pulling them off. But the the last set I did, I used the greenies, the the 3M pads, and I hated them. They like got clogged up real quick with wood, and I I didn't like them. I didn't like the end result. Yeah, I every time I've tried using any of those 3M pads for anything, I, it just always seems like like I don't know. Not I'm not a fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I've always I I would stain. And then I wouldn't knock the grain down until after my first clear coat. So I think, I don't know. I've always been afraid yeah, if I, I, I would take some of the stain off if I did it then. Oh, no, no. It'll, uh, what, what it does, it kind of makes the grain pop through the stain a little bit more. It's nice. Cause, it's uh, good to know. That, yeah, yeah, you'll, yeah, try it. It'll make it pop. Don't be afraid of I've deep been, penetration. No, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because leather really dyes, liking... I think, are the best. The alcohol-based leather dyes, I think, produce the best look, uh, especially after knocking it down and making that grain pop. But if you're dipping in an alcohol or a solvent-based dip, it will run. So that's that's the trouble with those. Yeah, yeah. I've been using. It can produce a cool stains. effect. Yeah, yeah. Water-based stains. Are, there, there's some really good water-based stains out there, and uh, I, I I use those pretty much. That's pretty much. All I use now because I still dip in uh, flesh lac, the uh, solvent-based stuff. Yeah, it's, it's good stuff. It's a lots of fun. It's amazing how yeah. many ways there are to do it. <laughs> oh man! Yeah, guys, anything yeah. else you want to you want to you want to touch on here besides stiff shafts and deep <laughs> penetration? Uh. We were doing really good there until you brought that up. And it's then gone. It was a constant it's gone. It's been, it's gone it went south quick. Um, Sorry, man. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> Carson, anything you want, you want to talk about before we wrap this sucker up? No, nothing comes to mind. We covered a lot of territory there. I figured that, that was pretty good. So That was a fun Absolutely. one, man. We had a blast, and, and, and we would definitely 100% do this again if you're interested. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I'm glad you guys are uh, getting after it and doing a bunch of these. And uh, 
I think you guys got a good thing going, and uh, yeah, that'd be cool. Be uh, back on thanks, at some man. Point. We're having a blast. We're having yeah, a lot like, of fun. It's been, All right. it's been a good time. Thanks. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> thanks for having me on. All right, Carson. Absolutely. Thanks so much, yeah. man. Hey, no problem. Have a good night. Thanks.